Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, our text is verses 38 and 39. <clears throat> we are concluding chapter 8 of Romans this morning. <clears throat> it has been an amazing chapter. This is really the climax of the chapter. And this passage that we are going over today really, really forms uh, bookends, the content of it. Uh, in conjunction with what was said at the very beginning. We have these two truths that are forming these bookends of chapter 8. Chapter 8 begins with, there is no condemnation. And chapter 8 ends with, there is no separation. These are two very comforting truths uh, for the people of God. Two very powerful truths that encourage our hearts. You know, we live every day in view of, of our failures and our sins. And these very truths keep us from despairing. They keep us from falling into great despair, considering that we still struggle with our sin. These truths bring comfort. Even though we struggle every day, there is now no condemnation. Even though we struggle every day, there is no separation. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, because we are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself. We have been called by him. We have been justified on account of him. We are promised to be glorified in him. We are preserved in the mighty hand of him. These are truths that we have found going through so many passages here in Romans of the truth of the security of the believer. And even though we have these truths that are given to us, we find ourselves at times still wondering, still worrying, still being anxious. We wonder not only about our standing with God because of our sin. Other things tend to, to cause worry and anxiousness on our part too as, as we consider maybe what the future holds. What, what will happen down the road? Are we fearful of what will we endure? What will we not endure? Uh, we talk about it a lot, whether or not persecution will ever come to America. We don't know if it will or not. But do we worry about it? Why do we worry about it? That's some of the things we need to wonder about. Why do we worry about persecution? Why do we worry about what may come down the road? Because if we allow these truths to, to really touch us in our hearts, we recognize no matter what, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And no matter what, there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that's the point here to bring this out even more. You, you know, it's you wonder why it is so much that the Apostle Paul, he really repeats a lot of what he has said. Or he, he says it in a certain way, then he'll sum it up again saying the same thing. And really and truly he does this because that's what we need. That's what his readers needed. That's what they needed to hear. That's what they needed to be reminded of. These are truths that we remind ourselves of because, yes, we know that, but then other things will take us over a, in, on a different path. They'll, they'll cause worry. They'll cause anxiousness. They'll, they'll have us to worry about things that we shouldn't. Nothing will separate you from the love of God, not even death, not even persecution. 
You know, we think about persecution, and yes, there, there's, there's that whole scenario of if persecution were to happen, what kind of harm will we endure? There is that question. What will they do? What kind of death will we endure? Those are the things that we wonder. But even with whatever may come, whether it happens or not, if, even if it did, what fear do we really have? Why worry? We all know that at some point we're all going to die. That's inevitable. So if it's by the hands of another, we know death is coming. Why do we worry? Nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. And the apostle is bringing out a variety of different scenarios for us to consider this morning to get the point across that there is nothing in existence, nothing that will separate you from the love of God. And I pray that this will be a great encouragement to us this morning, a source of strength for the days ahead, a source of great comfort in our time of worry. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we again come into your presence. We thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for these truths that we find here. Thank you for this great source of comfort. There are many things in this life that can cause us worry. But Father, we know you control all things. We know nothing is difficult for you. We know that nothing can thwart your will. We know that you ordain all things. You perform that which is appointed for us. We know that you are sovereign. And that your word says we are preserved in your hand. And nothing can pluck us out. Well, Father, let this be a time of joy for us as we reflect upon this great truth. And in the times ahead that we would consider these, these things that we are going over, that we will reflect upon them, meditate on them, take joy in them, and that they would be a source of strength for us, that we remember you are the Almighty. None can thwart your hand or say to you, what have you done? There are none that can, that can remove us from your hand, for there are none more powerful than you. Father, thank you for this, these wonderful truths. Thank you for this passage, and may your people glorify you this day. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> there are a number of things that the apostle is covering here. 
you find a number of things that are paired up. You find two that are really just by themselves. But he's really summing up everything. Anything and everything is included here. This is all-encompassing of everything in creation. Now, trying to divide the, the things here, trying to divide these statements, you can perhaps see that the apostle is, is first talking about there's nothing in, in time, in this life, or even at the moment of our death, nothing covering the time frame of our lives that will ever separate us. That there is nothing in the spiritual realm which will separate us from the love of God. That there is nothing in the temporal realm, in the realm of humanity, that will ever separate us from the love of God. And he really sums it up, no created thing will separate us from the love of God. He first begins by saying, he says, for I am convinced. Your translations may say, I am persuaded. It may say, I am sure. The apostle is, this is his, his firm conviction of the, the statements he's getting ready to say. Of course, tagging along what he had said previously, that in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, He's talking about the tribulation and distress and persecutions and famines, nakedness, peril, sword. All of this we overwhelmingly conquer. We conquer in abundance. And he says, I am convinced. What I just said, I am convinced. I am persuaded. This word indeed means to be persuaded of. It means to be confident of, to be assured. And it's actually in the perfect tense in the, in the Greek, which which is an action that has been completed and it has ongoing and lasting results. This is conveying his settled conviction. In the time in which he was convinced of this, he has not wavered in this conviction since the time in which he received it. He is convinced. He is persuaded. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. And you have to ask yourself, what is it that convinced him? Was it his encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus? Was it the miracles that the Lord worked through him, the miracles that he saw? Was it simply knowing the great work of Christ Jesus, all that he did? Perhaps you could say some of these are the first two, but it really comes down to the third. He's convinced because of the truths of Christ of the truth of his life and his death and his resurrection. This is where his confidence lies. And you think about all the things that we have learned thus far in the book of Romans. This is a letter about Christ. This is a letter about the work of Christ. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to run through these. Some of these are direct quotes. Some of these are really just summations of what the apostle said. But I'll give you the, the passage. Think about what the apostle Paul has told us thus far. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That Christ is the descendant of David, who is declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, and through him we have received grace. 116. The good news of Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 324. We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ. 325. Christ was publicly displayed as a propitiation for our sins. 424, those who believe receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. 425, Christ was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. 
5.1, we are justified by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 5.2, through him we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 5.6, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. 5.8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 5.11, through him we have received the reconciliation. 5.18, through his act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. 6.5, we are united to him in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection and now walk in the newness of life. 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 7.24 and 25, it's God through Christ who will save us from the, this body of death. 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. 8.2, in him we were set free from the law of sin and death. 8.15, through Christ and his work we have received the Holy Spirit and the adoption as sons. 8.17, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. 8.32, the Son was delivered over for us all. 8.34, it was Christ who died, who was, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And 8.37, we overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And in view of all of these things that the Apostle Paul has said, what does he say? I am convinced. I am persuaded. I am assured of these things. R.C. Sproul says, Do you know what happens to people when they are persuaded? They become convinced, and people who are convinced have convictions. And people who have convictions live according to principles. How else can you explain the life and ministry of Paul apart from the fact that he was a man who had been persuaded? That's what we need in the church, people who are convinced that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, end quote. Based on everything that Christ had done, and again, this is a letter about Christ. There are many more passages that we could have looked at. These are just some from a few from each chapter uh, that we've been over thus far of what Christ has done and who Christ is and all that he accomplished and the apostles really summing it up to say, I am convinced that there will be no separation from the love of God toward me now that I am in Christ. Is that how you feel too? Is that what you consider? Is that what you reflect upon? I am convinced that there will be no separation from the love of God toward me now that I am in Christ. Because that's what Paul is saying. That's what Paul is saying to his readers who are getting ready to endure persecution. Yeah, you know, we wonder what may come down the road. We wonder what the future holds. But we know that this audience did receive persecution. And how these words would have just encouraged their hearts. Paul says, yes, you're getting ready to endure this. So have I. And I'm convinced. Are you? things that he's convinced of you could look that there is nothing in the time frame in, in which we live he says for i am convinced that neither death nor life he begins with death he just he was just speaking about death he was just speaking about the violence that could come to believers death that comes in verse 36 and all these things we overwhelmingly conquer life and death is an all-encompassing statement here it covers all, your present time, your future, all the way to your death and beyond your death. 
Not even death itself can separate you from the love of God. You think about the, the way in which the scriptures present death to the believer. You think of perhaps Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. You think of what Paul says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you have the Apostle Paul who's even desiring to die. He's like, I'm torn between the two. It's better that I stay here and bear more fruit with you, but I have a desire to go home and be with Christ for that is far better. You think of death in the way that God does. You remember what Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And he prays to the Father in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Death itself cannot separate you from the love of God. Life, everything that comes in life, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. That's the point. There is nothing that can cause you to stumble to where you turn your back on the Lord. And there is nothing that you will do in this life that will cause the Lord to turn his back on you. Is there anything that you can do that would be surprising to the Lord? I mean, we worry about our sin all the time. Do you worry about your sin? This is what I was thinking. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is, this is what I said. Oh, Lord, how can I be one of your children when this is, this is still a problem for me. Was it surprising to the Lord that this happened? Did the Lord look down and say, oh, they're doing so well. Oh. I had no idea that this was going to happen. And yet, I said that they could have eternal life. I may need to put out some more revelation there to Put some conditions on this. There's nothing like that. Obviously. Because when God saved you, he saved you not, and he forgave you of your sins, not just up to the point in which you believed, but in everything you would do thereafter. Everything that you would do. You know, we talked about, we talked about David when we were going through Romans 4. We all know what the scripture says about David, a man after God's own heart. We know that David committed adultery. We know that David committed murder. But in just that scenario, we could look and say, look how forgiving and loving that God is, that he would still show David grace and that, and that David would not be lost. But do you consider some of the other things that David did? I mean, he numbers Israel in defiance to the Lord, and the Lord gives him three options of his punishment. Well, he chooses the pestilence, and you have an angel that is sent who swings his sword over, you could say, and there's 70,000 that perish. 70,000 people died because of David. And then when the angel of the Lord put his sword toward Jerusalem, the Lord said, that's enough. But you think of not just committing adultery, not just having this woman's husband murdered, and then trying to cover it all up, but 70,000 people died because of David's rebellion. And yet, this is a man after God's own heart.
not even David himself, was abandoned, was lost. And yet God saved him in view of everything that he would do. Because there's nothing in this life that will cause him to turn his back on you when he has saved you. Because his son died for you, you will never be lost no matter what comes in this life. And you will never be lost when the time comes for your death. Death, yes, it's painful uh, for those that are left here. It's painful for the loved ones. And even painful for the person getting ready to depart, at least to some extent. Because perhaps if, you're on, if you have the privilege of dying and, and it, it, you know it's coming kind of a deal. And you have the opportunity to tell your loved ones that you love them. And you see the pain that's on their faces. Of course, that's going to affect you too, to an extent. But at the same time, you know where you're getting ready to go. You know, death certainly can separate us from our families, from our church families, from our bodies. We know that it's an unnatural thing, death. Your body goes to the dust of the earth. Your spirit goes home to be with the Lord. Death separates us from our enemies. But death does not and cannot Separate us from the love of God in Christ. Because for those that are in Christ. In death. We are placed into the welcoming hands of the king who loves us. And so death is simply. The door that we must go through to go home to be with Christ. Nothing to fear. You probably heard the story of Donald Gray Barnhouse when his wife had passed away. He's trying to explain to his children that his wife is no longer hurting, etc. She's with the Lord. As they're driving, a large truck passes by, casts a shadow on the car, and so he asked his children, would you rather be hit by that truck or by its shadow? They said, well, by its shadow, because the shadow can't hurt you. And he said, your mother only walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and that's nothing to fear. 2,000 years ago, the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus that only its shadow would run over you. For every believer that is in Christ, the words of Jesus to the thief who hung next to him ring true for us and when the time comes that we are getting ready to depart. In that moment, Jesus says to us as well, today you will be with me in paradise. And God is faithful to bring about exactly what he says he's going to do. All who believe will have eternal life. So death nor life can separate you from the love of God. He goes on to say, nor angels nor principalities... So there's nothing within the, the span of our lives as far as time is concerned. There's nothing in the spiritual realm that will separate us from the love of God. Now, he uses the word angels. Uh, there is a debate whether or not these are speaking of, of the elect angels of God or are these still speaking of demonic forces. Because of the way that it's used, and angels, 
that word is still used of, of even demons, even by Jesus, when he talks about Satan and his angels. So I lean more toward the theologians who would say that angels and principalities are both speaking of uh, the demonic forces, the forces of evil, because the elect angels of God would never partake in separating you from the love of God. So we're talking about angels and principalities. Angels, the messengers of Satan, you could say, the principalities, the authorities of Satan. There are no demonic forces that can separate you. They separate you from the love of God that can snatch you away. I mean, if you really think about it, according to the scripture, what do we come to understand about demons and the forces of Satan? What is it that they can do? What are we told that they can do to the believing? I should specify. Perhaps they can cause fear. They can incite persecutions. As you think about the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, there's a great crowd that uh, roared up against him because uh, of denouncing their god Artemis, or at least that was the charge. They can incite temptations towards you. They can introduce false doctrine. You know, when you think of some of the workings of Satan... There are temptations that perhaps Satan can, can place us in or that he can try to influence us with in order to cause us to stumble. You know, when you think about, we've been talking, it's been made mention the past couple of weeks about Job. Well, one of the other things that occurred within the book of Job is you remember that Satan is telling the Lord, let me touch his body, he'll curse you to your face. Well, he didn't do that, but then you have Job's friends that come who are basically accusing Job of some kind of sin or something that the Almighty would come against him in this way. But you have his friend in chapter 4, Eliphaz, who says this. Verse 12, Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me, and trembling and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in the houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Between morning and evening they are broken in pieces. Unobserved they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? They die, yet without wisdom. And you have to ask this question. Who appeared to Eliphaz and said this? To where now Eliphaz is coming to Job, and he is repeating this back to Job in an accusative manner. Well, I think it was Satan. So Satan can work in that kind of a means, in that kind of a way. Satan can incite persecution against the people of God. I mean, when you think about just uh, what the dragon does in the book of Revelation. The scripture says in chapter 12, And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, 
He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He can persecute. After he tried to devour Christ is what the context is about, and Christ is caught up. What does Satan do? He turns his attention now to the church, to the woman. He incites violence as he did in Ephesus. He can introduce false doctrine. You have, you have the Apostle Paul saying, beware of seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. You know that Satan is working well within the churches today as you consider some of the more charismatic word of faith movement, some that are just in great error, and you think you have taken the gospel of God and you have manipulated it to be something that it should not be. You've distorted its truth to where the gospel is lost and it's gone. Could we say that that's a working of Satan? Absolutely. Can they snatch you away once you've been saved? Well, the book of Job is a testimony to that is no. And that's why in one sense you look at the book of Job being a lesson to Satan himself. Whom I save, you cannot have. Even when you look at the beginning. I mean, when you consider the whole scenario with Adam and Eve in the very beginning... There's a separation that takes place here when the curse comes upon them. When you have the woman and you have Satan and the Lord says to them, I'm going to put enmity between you two here. What is, why? Why did he say that? Because Eve had allied herself with Satan in rebellion against the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to put enmity between you two, between your seed and in her seed, he's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. And what is he saying? She allied herself with you against me, but you can't have her. I'm going to save her. I'm going to redeem her. And then you have the first announcement of the coming one in Genesis 3.15. Not even Eve could be plucked from the hand of the Lord. And that's the very truth that we find in John 10. None can pluck them out of my Father's hand. None can pluck them out of my hand, Jesus says. What does Jesus say when it comes to the forces of evil? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you think of gates being a sign of defense. It's not that you have the church that is here taking the assaults of, of Satan and just trying to survive. Jesus is saying, I'm building my church. And the gates of hell itself, its greatest defense, will never stop the increase of my church. They can't hinder anything. There is nothing in the spiritual realm that will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ has made an open show of Satan and his forces when he rose from the dead. That's what Colossians 2, 14 and 15 is about. He has cast down Satan. He has judged him. He has rendered him powerless. These are the truths that we find concerning Satan himself. If, if, if you take these passages of scripture in which Christ has bound the strong man and he's plundering his goods. You take Luke chapter 10 in which, which talks about uh, that the 70 go out and they come back with great results. And what does he say? I saw Satan falling like a star. In John 12, what does he say? Now the hour has come for the ruler of this world to be cast down and judged. And then the writer of Hebrews says, 
that he's been rendered powerless. John says in 1 John 3, For this reason did the Son of God come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. What can he do? What can he do to the elect of God? Nothing. He can incite persecution. That's under the sovereignty of God. And it only builds the church even more so. You think about how the faithful respond to the persecution that they endure. I'm just going to read just a little portion of this, so please hang with me. This is from J.C. Rowell's book, Light from Old Times, talking about the first Marian martyr, John Rogers. Talking about the day of his death. Now when the time came that he being delivered to the sheriff should be brought out of the new gate to Smithfield, the place of his execution, first came to him Master Woodruff, one of the aforesaid sheriffs, and calling Master Rogers unto him, asked him if he would revoke his abominable doctrine and his evil opinion of the sacrament of the altar. Master Rogers answered and said, That which I have preached I will seal with my blood. Then quoth Master Woodruff, Thou art a heretic. That shall be known, quotes Rogers, at the day of judgment. Well, quoth Master Woodruff, I will never pray for thee, but I will pray for you. Quoth Master Rogers. And so was brought that same day, which was Monday the 4th of February, by the sheriffs toward Smithfield, saying the song, by the way. All the people wonderfully rejoicing at his constancy, with great praises and thanks to God for the same. And there in the presence of Master Rochester, comptroller of the Queen's household, Sir Richard Southwell, both the sheriffs, and a wonderful number of people, the fire was put unto him. And when it had taken hold both upon his legs and shoulders, he as one feeling so smart washed his hands in the flame as though it had been in cold water. And after lifting up his hands unto heaven, not removing the same until such time as the devouring fire had consumed them. Most mildly, this happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of the Heavenly Father. A little before his burning at the stake, his pardon was brought if, it would have recant, if he would have recanted, but he utterly refused. He was the first martyr of all the blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time that gave the first adventure upon the fire his wife and his children being eleven in number, ten able to go, and one sucking on her breast, met him by the way as he went toward Smith, Smithfield. This sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood could nothing move him, but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of Christ's gospel. The French ambassador he wrote this back to France. This day was performed the, conf the confirmation of the alliance between the Pope and this kingdom by a public and solemn sacrifice of a preaching doctor named Rogers who has been burned alive for being a Lutheran. But he died persisting in his opinion. At this conduct, the greatest part of the people took such pleasure that they were not afraid to make him many exclamations to strengthen his courage. Even his children assisted at it, comforting him in such a manner that it seemed 
as if he had been led to a wedding. It's amazing. Even in the time of persecution and death, nothing was going to separate Rogers from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He went to his death willingly, and not just him. John Hooper, John Bradford, John, John Hooper, uh, specifically he had told the sheriffs whenever they had bound him to take him to Smithfield as well. He's like, he said to them, I will cause you no trouble. I would have went. And then when they got him to the place in which they were getting ready to, to bind him, bind his legs, bind his waist, and bind his neck, he refused it. He said, I will cause you no trouble. And they only bound him by the waist. They offered to bind his neck and his, his legs, and he wouldn't do it. So many, not just with the Marian martyrs, many of the reformers, many of the early church fathers, happily went to their deaths, singing the psalms, singing the praises of God, because they knew that not even death would separate them from the love of God. Because, again, at death, we are placed into the hands of our great king. So why do we worry, dear Christian? Why do you worry about what may come, what may not? If it does come, we'll be sent to the Lord. If it doesn't come, we're going to be sent to the Lord. Either way, at the appointed time, we're going home. So there is nothing in the spiritual realm that will separate you, not even Satan inciting violence, and that's going to come up again. There is nothing in the realm of humanity. Now you think here, he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come. Nothing in this life, nothing in the life to come. Dr. Lawson says nothing today, nothing tomorrow, nothing forever, nothing in time and nothing in eternity. He doesn't mention the past because obviously there was nothing in the past that separated you from the love of God which is in Christ because you're still serving him, you're still obeying him, you still love him, you still have great affection for him. And that should be a lesson too, that there was nothing in the past that would cause me to desert him or for him to desert me. So therefore there's nothing in the future that's going to cause him to desert me or me abandon him. I am preserved in the hand of my king. Regardless of whatever calamities or persecution that the people of God are subject to presently or still to come. Things present, things to come, nothing. These are all connected together, obviously. Some a little repetitive. But it's to get the point across. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Now there's a debate here on this word as well, whether or not that power should be in reference to the angelic host or the, the evil angelic host. Because it's often used in conjunction with principalities, powers, authorities, all of that. But he's already talked about that. A lot of times that this word is used, meaning powers, it, it refers to earthly powers, earthly authorities, governments that are hostile to the Christian faith. Nothing that they do will separate us from the love of God. You think of the first, you think of the church. The early church, 
they were mercilessly persecuted by the Romans. Mercilessly. From the time in which the church began in the first century until around 312, 315, right in that area. Hundreds of years persecuted. And what happened? It just kept growing. The church in China today, no matter what happens, it keeps growing. Nothing can stop it. Why? But one, because Christ says he's going to build his church. Nothing can stop it. You know, I've shared with you the, um, the story of Dr. Beakey. I think it was mid-90s, mid-90s maybe. I have to go back and look uh, what he had said there as far as the time frame. But he was in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he was at a particular village or city, and there was only just a few Christians there, not very many, just a few, and they were recounting to him what would happen because this is a Muslim country. They would talk about how they would be arrested, they would be kept for a couple of days, they would be beaten, they would be let go. They would be arrested, they would be beaten, and then they would be let go. And this was just a continual cycle that would happen. Very severe beatings, by the way. And so Dr. Beakey had asked this man, well, how can I pray for you? And this man said, enduring this, he's endured this a couple of times already. He says to Dr. Beakey, pray that the persecution does not stop. And Dr. Beakey said, what do you mean? He said, because here we know those that are in Christ and those that are not. We don't want here what you have in America because the lines are too blurred. These are ones that are being beaten, and yet they say, pray that it don't stop. And now they're obviously greater in number. Because not even, not even anything that a government does can thwart the will of God, cause the people of God to stumble or cause the people of God to be lost. And, and I mean, we worry about it. And we, we, we need to really ask ourselves, we need to stop and ask ourselves, why do we worry about this? Well, this one needs to get in office because if this one gets in the office, maybe then the trajectory of the nation will change. No. It'll change when God determines that it's going to change. Regardless. Well, we think of the government, we, I think we give the government way too much credit at times to have way too much power. But if we go to the scripture, what does the scripture say? God laughs at their rebellion. And he says, in spite of your rebellion, I have established my king. Meaning Christ. And then the psalmist calls to the nations and says, shows Show discernment and kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. The nations, regardless as to when you think this will happen, we all agree that Christ has come for the nations. And the nations will be subdued by Christ. If you look at some of these passages, and passages that we're familiar with, Let's go to the Christmas passage, Isaiah 9. Let's look at what it says. 
In Isaiah 9, beginning of verse 6, we're very familiar with this passage. We see it every Christmas. But let's look at what he says here. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. From the time in which he comes into the world until the end of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And you go to Isaiah 42. Beginning of verse 1. The scripture says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. He's going to establish justice in the earth. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands are waiting for his law. And that word there is his Torah. The coastlands are waiting for his Torah, his law. You think in conjunction with these verses, you think of Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The psalmist said he will have dominion from sea to sea. And then you have what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 beginning in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Christ is in heaven, ruling and reigning, placing all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be death. He will establish justice in the earth. The nations are his inheritance. These are all passages of scripture that we all agree will happen. Maybe we differ on the time frame. But if the nations are his inheritance. And the nations will be subdued by him. And the scripture tells us that he raises up leaders. He brings down leaders. He raises up empires. He brings down empires. Then if all of these are subject to him. What can any government do? 
to the people of God that he has preserved? Nothing. There is nothing. Nothing, no power, no government, because they're all subject to Christ. He goes on to speak of height and depth. Now, there's some, some differing on this as to what he's talking about. Is he talking about the astrological heavens above us? What is he referring to? Uh, the depths, what is he referring to? Uh, some would say that he's talking about the heavenly bodies, that there is nothing uh, vertically in the heavenly bodies or below, etc., that can separate us from the love of God. It's kind of an interesting way to say that. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, he says this, The terms are spatial but should be interpreted metaphorically in light of the poetic cast of the passage. There is nothing, no obstacle, neither high nor low, in all the created order that can separate believers from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the idea is it's boundless. The love of God is boundless and there's no obstacle that can, that can come and, and, and hinder us or remove us. But there is another uh, view. Because these words have a variety of meanings, when you think of the word height, it could be referring to that. But the word is also used, like in 2 Corinthians 10, for example, as the towering of self-conceit, a presumption. The word for depth is used elsewhere in the scripture talking about uh, fullness, immensity, profundities, deep laid, deep laid plans. But one theologian says this. This has been variously understood. Some have regarded it as referring to evil spirits in the air, others to high and lofty speculation and doctrine, others to heaven, to all that is in heaven, I regard it as synonymous with prosperity, honor, elevation in this life. The meaning is that no possible circumstances in which Christians could be placed, though surrounded with wealth, honor, splendor, and though elevated to the rank and function, could alienate them from the love of Christ. The tendency of these things to alienate the mind, to engross the affections, and to occupy the time. But the apostle says that even these would not be sufficient to withdraw their strong love from the Lord Jesus Christ. So no depth, no height, no, no place of honor and prosperity or any elevation in life, any honor that you may receive will cause you to abandon Christ or for him to abandon you, nor any depth, nor the lowest circumstances uh, one writer says, the lowest circumstances of depression or poverty or contempt, any want, the very lowest rank of life, nothing will separate you, whether him from you or you from him. There is nothing in this life. Any other created thing, that really sums up everything. The only thing that is uncreated is God. Everything else is created. So it's a good summation there. No created thing. That includes all in the spiritual realm. That includes all in the realm of humanity, in the temporal realm, everything. And no, nothing, none of these things will be able 
have the ability is the idea. None of these things have the ability. It comes from this Greek word dunamai, which comes into our English as dynamite, a powerful explosion. No force is strong enough. No created thing. For there is nothing greater than our Lord. So I think and he's, he's all-encompassing here. Nothing. And it's like, how many times do we need to hear this? Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing will pluck you from his hand. You are fully and eternally secured in the hand of God. No any other created thing will have the power, have the ability to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in your time here or after, nothing in the spiritual realm, nothing in existence, nothing. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that, that understanding of I am forever secured in the hand of God? No government can do anything. No individual can do anything. No evil being can do anything. You know, that should build confidence in us. Boldness. Boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. Boldness in living out the faith. Living in obedience. And that's a question, isn't it? Are you, are you living confidently now? Are you living boldly, proclaiming the gospel of Christ? If not, why? What's hindering you? Because anything that's hindering you is only in your mind. Because there's nothing in the creation itself that can hinder you. What keeps you from serving God? Faithfully. What keeps you from living joyfully? That's another thing, too, that this should promote in us a great joy to live out our faith, regardless of what you know, repercussions come as far as what slander may come. People may say mean things about you. Is that going to rob you of your joy? This person, this unbeliever, they mocked me. Well, they're not really mocking you. They're mocking the one that you stand for. And unless they repent, they will receive the repercussions of their actions. But do we allow the unbelieving world to rob us of our joy? These things should bring joy to your heart. Nothing separating me. Not my sin that I commit. Not my failures that I commit. No outside influence. Nothing separates me from the love of God. If it doesn't bring you joy, why? Are you still anxious over the future? Or are you still anxious what may come and what may not? Why? Why do you worry? Why are we so afraid? I understand that death is one of those things that we wonder how it's going to happen What's it going to be like? That's one of the experiences, obviously, we're not going to know of until it happens. But if we can look back and we can see how the saints died well, 
They died in faith. They died with joy, even enduring horrendous deaths of being burned alive, and yet they can lift their hands to heaven and be joyful in the Lord, sing the psalms, sing his praises until they can say nothing no more. Why are we anxious? Why do we worry? The Christians that are thrown to the wild beast in the Colosseum, they gather together and they're singing as the lions are coming. Why do we worry? We might have it better than them if persecution does come. They had to endure lions. They had to endure burnings being used as human torches. They endured horrendous deaths. What may come of us? Might get shot. That pales in, compar in comparison what they went through. But death itself is only the means to bring us to Christ. So why do you worry? Why are you anxious? Are you worried about your children? What may come? You're worried about the next generation? Or what may come? Nothing separates us. Well, we wonder about our children. What are they going to endure? Nothing separates us. Well, what is their lives going to be like? You know, we have even that saying that Man, you're bringing children into this, in, in, into this world at this time? Man, it's awful. Did we live in the Roman Empire during the first and second centuries or even the third centuries? No. But each generation, as one theologian said, each generation is created for that time. So the next generations that are coming up, this is their time. This is their time to honor the Lord and to honor the Lord with their lives if that's what it takes. If that's what the Lord determines. So why be anxious? Don't worry about your death. Because your death is your gain. Regardless of how it happens. And you know, we wonder, uh, when's it going to happen, and et cetera. And I've wondered those things too. I wonder what, what's going to happen, and when I'm going to die. I mean, I think about, and I'll just be honest with you, I've shared with you. I think about my dad who passed away at 52 and my brother who passed away at 43. Sometimes I wonder if I'll get out of my 40s or not. I don't know if I'll live past my dad or my brother. I have no idea. I wonder those things. I can't help but wonder in some ways, like, hmm, I wonder when that time's going to come. But I can't be worried about it to the extent that it, it affects me greatly as to how I'm going to live my life for the Lord. Because regardless of what precautions that I take in order to try to have a long life, at the appointed time, it's going to happen regardless of where I am and what I'm doing. So, why do we worry? You can't add a single hour to your life. You're in the hand of a sovereign king. That's what Jesus says. You can't add a single hour to your life. If you're worried about your standing with God, which is probably the more common thing that occurs among believers, it was Christ Jesus who died, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, and who intercedes for you on your behalf. You are forever secured, dear friends. So live your life confidently in the Lord. Live your life joyfully in the Lord. 
Live your life without the anxiousness of what's going to come because the grace of God will see us through regardless of what comes. Plan for the future. Raise your children to be the, the, the coming up to live their life faithfully and to proclaim the greatness of God in their generations as they get older. We don't know how long it is that the Lord's going to tarry. We have no earthly idea. So we must plan for the future. We must plan and raise our children. Be faithful. Be joyful in your king. Live your life well and die well. That your king will be honored in your life and in your death. And then impact the next generation thereafter. We have, this, we have books like this. Life from old times. We have Fox's Book of Martyrs. We have early church father writings. We have so many different writings that express to us so many that died in their faith. They died in their particular moments, maybe not knowing what kind of an impact that they would have on the Christians for centuries to come. But here we are, and we're reading it, and we're being encouraged by it because this gives us that picture to know. This gives us that reality to know. God is faithful, and he sees his people through regardless of what kind of a death that they endure. So if persecution does come, you may, you may be able to, by God's grace, if he chooses to, you may be able to impact others in the years to come thereafter because you died in faith and you died well. So plan for the future. Live boldly. Live confidently. And dear friends, live joyfully. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for these amazing truths. Thank you so much that we are privileged to be preserved in your hand. Not only to be preserved that we would never be lost, but to be loved by you. A love that we can't even fathom. A love so great that our finite minds cannot understand. But your word affirms to us that you love us. You love us with the same love that you have for your son. A perfect love. An infinite love. Thank you for making us part of the family of God through your son. Thank you for his life. Thank you for, for him living for us. Living the perfect life that you require. Thank you that he died for us. And that you poured out your wrath upon your son to satisfy your justice. And Father, he indeed satisfied it for all who would believe. Thank you that he rose again. That through his resurrection, Father, we have the promise of eternal life. He was raised for our justification, as your word says. Thank you for the promise that it's through faith alone, believing these truths, that we may be received by you. We may be loved by you, adopted by you. Thank you for this great gift of salvation. May we live boldly, Father, and, and proclaim it to others that they too might come to know you through our testimony. Father, we don't know what, what's coming. We don't know the future. But I pray that you would use this time 
if it is indeed going to be a time of persecution, that you would use this time to prepare us and to be resolved, Father, in our faith to develop these convictions as the apostle does, to teach the coming generations, and that you would use us by our life and even by our deaths to encourage others. Father, we know you know all things. Regardless of what happens, we know that soon enough uh, we will have our day. And we look forward to the day in which we will be made, that we will be made whole. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, amen.